Last Sunday morning, we took a bit of a break and we actually looked at our PowerPoint verse for the month. So we have that now out of the way. But I told the group on Wednesday night, before I knew the ground was gonna be shaken here all week, that we were going to take a look at a message that actually I did at the Prophecy Conference a week ago. I wanted to see, or make sure rather, that we could get it recorded here. And uh, I got so much feedback on the message, I thought I'd share it with you uh, this morning as well. So, are you ready? Open your Bibles to Matthew 24. We'll take a pause there for a moment, but we're going to look at a myriad of scriptures and every pastor ought to say that in every church during every service. We're gonna look at a myriad of scriptures, amen? We are here to study the word of God and to rightfully divide the word of truth. Now, as students of scripture, I think one of the main questions that all of us ask is the one question that none of us can know, and that is the day and hour of the Lord's coming for his church. Now, please understand the rapture of the church and the second coming are two distinct events in scripture, amen? Now. Even though we cannot know and will not know the day or the hour the Lord comes for his church, we are told in multiple ways, directly and indirectly, that we will be able to see the day approaching. Let me give you two instances where scripture tells us so. In Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, we're told to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. In other words, don't quit going to church, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see what? The day approaching. And then Jesus said, say Jesus said, in Luke 21, 28. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up, lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Now. Hebrews tells us we're going to see the day approaching. And we'll talk more about that as we go. And the Jews in the tribulation are told they will see the day of the Lord's return approaching as well. So here's our question and direction for this morning. What can we see right now that would give us indication regarding the proximity of the tribulation, which is preceded by the rapture of the church. What are the things we can look for? Should we be looking for those things? Should we be inquiring about such things? And our answer is going to be found at least initially from the Olivet Discourse and the opening statement that tells us exactly what we're going to look at here this morning. So would you stand and read with me please from Matthew chapter 24, we'll look at what I like to call the preamble to the Olivet Discourse in verses three through eight. Matthew 24, three. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And Lord, we thank you that you have indeed 
given us sufficient information to tell us when our redemption is near, when these lowly bodies are going to put on the glorified state and forever be with you. Thank you also that we know about this time that is coming upon the whole world. And you have told us how we can avoid that great and terrible day of the Lord. So Lord, speak to our hearts this morning. And should there be any who don't know you this morning, may that not be the case by the end of our time together. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, garden variety critics and a group known as preterists, as well as the historicists, would take what we just read and say, well, this is just the normal course of life. This is going to be something that happens throughout the course of history. There's nothing special about it. There's always been false Christ. There's always been wars and rumors of wars. There's always been international and ethnic tensions. There's always been plagues, which is the meaning of pestilences. And certainly earthquakes have always been a part of life on earth. Is that true? Yes, absolutely that's true. However, we need to examine the question that was asked by the pair of fishermen brothers' disciples because the question they asked was those things in relation to the last days. They even used the word signs and then Jesus mentioned these normal course of life events that are going to have some type of association with the last days. Now, I believe that what relates specifically to the last days in Jesus' opening statement is simply the last phrase he uses in verse eight. These are the beginning of sorrows. Now we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5, one to five, concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night or by surprise or suddenly. For when they say what? peace and safety. Is that not the cry of the world today? Peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you brethren are not in darkness. So that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Now, again, we find in Paul's letter to the church at Thessaloniki, the implication of an awareness of the lateness of an hour by simply stating this day is not going to catch you off guard. It's not going to take you by surprise. It's not going to come upon you like a thief would in the night. And even though the day and the hour cannot be known because Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, and that's still true today. So it's foolish to set dates. It's foolish to even go into things like uh, we often hear, well, he said the day and the hour, it doesn't mean the month and the year can't be known. But yes, it does, because the day and the hour are within a month and a year. The fact is nobody knows, say amen. amen. Now the same Greek word translated as sorrows in Matthew 24, eight is translated as pains in First uh, Thessalonians 5, one to five. Now the word beginning, the beginning of sorrows in Matthew 24, eight could also be translated as commencement. Now that would be more appropriate with the word picture that Jesus is drawing. And with all that said, what we can know about what Jesus was telling the four inquisitive uh, fishermen about his return and the signs that indicate it is near or soon is that there is coming a day 
when the events that he mentioned, which will be happening throughout the course of human history, are going to change and begin, like birth pangs, a progression to delivery. And that delivery will be the world being birthed into the millennial reign of Christ. Now, I think what all the men recognize here is that once labor pains begin in earnest, there's no reversing them. Ladies, you know about that, right? All of you who have given birth. Once labor pains begin in earnest, there's no reversing the process. So if we can identify the fact that labor pains have been intensifying since a particular day and year that we have in our recent history, then we can recognize the fact that is our title this morning. And I'll tell you that in a few moments. Now, what we're being told by way of introduction, and by the way, we're still in our introductory portion. We'll get to the sermon in the second hour. <laughs> what we're being told is this, the increase of false Christ is going to lead to the coming of the ultimate false Christ who rides out on the first horse of the famed horseman of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter six. The wars and rumors of wars are going to lead to the ultimate battle of Armageddon recorded in Revelation 16. International and ethnic tensions are going to continue to increase until they reach their zenith under the rider of the red horse in Revelation 6 when men are killing one another all over the face of the earth and the third of the world's population is killed by doing so. We're also told that famine is going to drive the price of bread up to a day's pay or a day's wage for a loaf of bread. And this too coming under the rider on the black horse and the third of the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation 6. We're also told that plagues are going to kill a, a massive number of people on the earth. And I think the example of the ultimate or the fulfillment of that is when the star Wormwood crashes into the earth. It's actually most likely uh, not an asteroid, but rather a comet for it would break up and radiate the waters, all the fresh water supply of the earth. And we're told in Revelation 8, many people died from this plague. And then finally, we're going to see an increase in earthquakes, both in frequency and intensity, that will lead to the greatest earthquake in the history of mankind, according to Revelation 16. Now, there is something that kicks off this sequence or initiates the birth pangs that we'll talk about when we close this morning. But this birth pang-like progression of these things is going to end during the tribulation, which then gives birth to, millennia, to the millennial reign of Christ on earth. And just one more thing in our introduction, and then we'll start the message. Matthew 24, 36 to 39 says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, as we mentioned a moment ago, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days, pay attention to this phrase, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. There's an unawareness there. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now I believe that the time before the flood parallels the time before the tribulation. The flood came unexpectedly on all non-believers, just like the rapture. God's people were lifted up above the direct wrath of God on the whole world, just like in the rapture. 
So the question is, what was it like in the days of Noah? In Genesis 6, 5, we're told that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then further, we're told, same chapter 11 and 12, the earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Let me ask you, is mankind's heart filled with evil today? Is the earth filled with violence today? Is the earth corrupt today? Well, therefore, if we have arrived at this stage of being as it was in the days of Noah, and if Jesus said there's a birth pang-like progression of the things we mentioned earlier, and it is now well advanced, the only conclusion can be as to where we are in the prophetic timeline is our title this morning, and it is the end of the beginning. We, I believe, are at the end of the beginning. Now we could track statistics on the events that Jesus spoke of, the increase in wars, certainly earthquakes and atmospheric events and all those things, as he mentioned in the opening uh, portion of the Olivet Discourse. We could get our title from that, but the course I wanna take this morning is a bit different. And the fact is there are other elements that are telling us that we indeed can know that we are near the end, at least of the church age. Things specific to the last days that will reach their ultimate fulfillment during the tribulation period and they're beginning to develop even now. Now, again, the rapture of the church is prior to the great tribulation. Wow, that was pretty weak. The rapture of the church is prior to the great tribulation. Now listen, the whole tribulation is the wrath of God. So if you want to take the pre-wrath position, that still puts the rapture before the great tribulation. The fact is the whole thing is the 70th week of Daniel. It's one unit divided into two parts and there's a change dramatically that takes place at the midpoint when the Antichrist declares himself to be God. Now, what we're going to find this morning is that there is clear evidence that our position in the prophetic timeline is at the end of the birth pangs, which have already begun. And the world is about to go into heavy labor and things are going to change radically and dramatically during the great tribulation that eventually gives birth to the millennium. Now, three things we're going to use this morning to make our case. And the first of our triad is simply this. Here's the first thing for you to take note of that tells us we're at the end of the beginning. Listen, here's number one. The Jews are back in the land and the focus of world attention. Here's the first thing for us to pay attention to that tells us we are at the end of the beginning. The Jews are back in the land and the focus of world attention. Now, I wanna look at this in two parts this morning. The first being the Jews being back in the land. Now in Daniel 9, 24, we're told 70 weeks are what? Determined, meaning they are cut out or set aside. There are 70 weeks determined for your people, Daniel, and for your holy city. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews. What is Daniel's holy city? Jerusalem. 
Now here's what's going to happen. Here's what's determined for Daniel's people and his holy city. To finish a transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up or bring to completion vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now there's some debate as to anointing the most holy, speaking of the Messiah, ruling and reigning on the earth, or the temple which he occupies during his millennial reign. Now I have to say, I chose this verse over Ezekiel 37 to make our point, because Ezekiel 37 in part actually fulfills what Daniel said in 924, the vision of the dry bones there. Now this is preferred, at least for our setting and time this morning, because this verse implies several things. First, it tells us that there's unfinished business between God and the nation of Israel and the holy city of Jerusalem. For we know that there are only 69 of the 70 weeks that have yet been fulfilled because the 70th week is the tribulation period. Now the second thing is this, for God to fulfill the 70th week for Daniel's people in holy city, Daniel's people need to be back in the land and they need to have possession of the holy city. And this took place in 1967 during the six day war, at least the capturing of East Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. Now the third thing is, is that when Daniel's people have possession of the city, the purpose is to fulfill prophecy. That tells us this initiates a progression that Jesus told us is going to happen in a birth pang-like fashion. He's going to fulfill vision and prophecy concerning Daniel's people and the holy city. Now that means that God's plans for redeeming and reconciling the Jews happens during a time where prophecies concerning them are going to be fulfilled, which ushers, ushers in that time of everlasting righteousness. Now in Ezekiel 37, 11 to 12, the Lord said to Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, indeed, our bones are dry and our hope is lost, which implies a long period of desolation. And we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into where? The land of Palestine. No, the land of what? Israel, listen, if you have Bible maps in your Bible and it says Palestine, cross that off and write its actual name. It is the land of Israel. Amen. We're not in the 70th week of Daniel. Yeah, praise the Lord indeed. We are not in the 70th week of Daniel. The church is not going to go through the tribulation. Yet the regathering is already happening and thus it tells us that it is outside of the 70th week of Daniel as well. It happens prior to it. It has happened and is continuing to happen, the regathering of the Jews into the land of promise. What that tells us is now being 71 plus years down the line, we must be at the end of the beginning of what needs to happen before the 70th determined week is going to be fulfilled. We're also told <clears throat> through the prophet Amos in 9:14 to 15, the Lord says, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel, 
They shall build the waste places and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the Lord who? Your God. God is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now we can see that verse 14 has been fulfilled as we recognize that Israel is flourishing agriculturally and economically today. And verse 15 states that I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up. That phrase can also be translated by the single word uprooted. Now that implies there are going to be attempts to uproot Israel. Are they happening today? What nation is the world focused on today? The nation of Israel. What is the world talking about today? The deal of the century. What is the purpose of the deal of the century or the focal point of the deal of the century? One piece of real estate smaller than San Bernardino County known as the land of Israel. Now I'll remind you that Gaza and the West Bank and the Golan are part of Israel according to God's mapping process. Now, what's the desire of the global community today? A two-state solution. What's that mean? Uprooting a portion of Israel, specifically East Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount is, which is sacred to the Jews. And by the way, let me remind you that even though uh, Jerusalem appears in the Bible over 800 times. Jerusalem does not appear in the Quran even once. There's no mention of the Temple Mount in the Quran. There's a mention of a faraway mosque, but all the Muslim scholars say the faraway mosque was in Saudi Arabia, just like Mecca and Medina. There is nothing sacred about Jerusalem to the Muslims. The only thing the Muslims care about is that the Jews have Jerusalem. That's what their concern is. And therefore, many today are seeking to uproot Israel and create two states. The Lord said, when I bring them back, it's not gonna happen. Now, we recently had an economic conference in Bahrain. Menama uh, was the name of the city. And the nations of the world were being polarized before the conference ever even began. Now, here's the interesting thing about this particular aspect of the recent conference from a couple of weeks back. Reuters wrote this in one of their articles. To the, Saudi, or the Saudis and Emiratis, the UAE, United Arab Emirates, who in recent years has significantly warmed relations with Israel, are the first two Arab powers to announce participation in the event. During the event, the Bahrain foreign minister made this quote, and this was reported by the Times of Israel, Israel is here to stay and we want peace with it. Now, why is that of interest? Because the Saudis and the Arab Gulf states occupy the geographic region of the world known as Sheba and Dedan in the Ezekiel 38 war scenario, and they are the nations that are going to side with Israel, at least in protesting the invading forces. The Saudis and the other Arab Gulf states are going to say to the invading armies, what's the purpose of this? What have you come to do? Have you come to plunder the country economically, which implies or assumes that Israel will be economically flourishing, and this little bitty country has not only the eighth most powerful military in the world, they have the eighth strongest economy in the world. Listen, there has to be a God who has not cast off the nation of Israel. Now, 
Here's the other interesting thing about that particular mention that the Saudis are warming relationships with Israel. The UAE is warming relationships with, the Israel, with Israel. Bahrain is warming relationships with the Israel. All this is ha- with Israel. All this is happening while the invading forces are not only in coalition together now, they are working militarily together as well. And therefore, many of them being on the northern border of Israel is no coincidence at such a time as this. And by the way, the nations that are going to invade Israel are Russia, Turkey, Iran, Libya, and Sudan. Now with Russia being out of the picture, what one feature is shared in common by those other nations on the list? They are all what? They're Muslim nations. Not only are they Muslim nations, they account for over 90% of radical jihadist activity in the world today. Now, that's interesting because here you have the very nation where Islam was born siding with the Jews. And this is simply because, at least in part, for a shared animosity with the Shiite Iranians because the Sunnis or the uh, Saudis and the other uh, Arab Gulf states are Sunni, at least in majority. Now, the fact is, Israel is back in the land. The land is flourishing. The economy of the region is the focus of world attention because the economy of the Middle East is going to be the motivating factor that draws the invading forces down from the north with a hook in their jaw placed there by God himself. Listen, all I have to say is this. We are at the end of the beginning of the birth pangs. Heavy labor is about to begin, but before it does, we're out of here and forever with the Lord. I mentioned this before, I'll say it again. I think it almost comical. Well, no, I don't think it almost comical. It is comical that those who say that we hold the pre-tribulation rapture event uh, because we're escapist. Guilty, absolutely. I want to escape the whole thing, don't you? As though that's some kind of negative. Now, we're at the end of the beginning of the birth pangs. Jesus is coming soon, no question about that. Now, here's the second indicator that we're getting close. Listen, this is getting a little bit closer to home as well. Here's number two. Much of the church is bowing to the world rather than honoring God's word. Much of the church is bowing to the world rather than honoring God's word. I don't think we pay enough attention to this element of the prophetic scenario and timeline, but it is clearly part of the end of the beginning. Now, let me give you some examples right here in the good old U.S. of A., This comes from the Episcopal Church website. In 1976, we're told the General Convention of the Episcopal Church declared that homosexual persons are children of God who have a full and equal claim with all other persons upon the love, acceptance, and pastoral concern and care of the church. Since then, faithful Episcopalians have been working toward a greater understanding and radical inclusion of all God's children. Along the way, The Episcopal Church has garnered a lot of attention, but with the help of organizations such as Integrity USA, the church has continued its work toward full inclusion of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Episcopalians. 
In 2003, the first openly gay bishop was consecrated. In 2009, general convention resolved that God's call is open to all. In 2012, a provisional right of blessing for same gender relationships was authorized. Discrimination against transgender persons in the ordination process was officially prohibited. In 2015, the canons of the church were changed to make the right of marriage available to all people regardless of gender. To our lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender brothers and sisters and siblings, the Episcopal Church welcomes you. This is from their website. Now, let's move up a little closer beyond 2015. This just happened two weeks ago. The largest U.S. Presbyterian denomination ordained their first non-binary person as a minister. The Presbytery of the James, a governing body of the Presbyterian Church USA, will ordain its first pastoral candidate who identifies as gender non-binary, not exclusively masculine or feminine this weekend. The Presbytery will ordain Jess Cook during a ceremony June 29, 2019 at Ginter Park Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia. Non-binary, non-sense. There are only two genders, somebody say. Amen. Now, let's back up for a minute into what the Episcopal Church has stated. Homosexual persons are children of God who have a full and equal claim with all others. The radical inclusion of all God's children. This is one of the favored sayings of many communities today who stand against the church and they make the argument, we are all God's children. Is that true? No, we are not all God's children. If we were all God's children, the Bible wouldn't teach adoption. The Bible wouldn't tell us that we have to become God's child through knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, fact is, if we are all God's children, then why do we read this in John 1, 12 to 13? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to do what? To become, which implies a status other than that prior to that. Those who receive him, they have the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. In other words, those who are born again are those who are God's children. Now, we also need to remember that the first sign of the Lord's soon return, giving to the inquiring quartet of fishermen, was false Christ coming in Jesus' name. Now, if we remember that Christ actually means anointed, and the Messiah, the Mashiach, and David, the anointed son of David, tells us that this is beyond just a personage in the sense that this is one who has been selected and anointed by God. Now, if we understand uh, the Christos of the Greek New Testament to mean anointed, then what Jesus was actually saying was simply this. There's going to be claims of an anointing sanctioned by Jesus in the last days that are actually false claims. This is happening all over the world today. It's happening in the church today. There are those who are laying claim to being apostles in the sense of Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the men, and thus Paul also who told us that one uh, point of identification for an apostle is having seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. 
<coughs> and these who are claiming to be apostles today are laying claim to having either taken a trip to heaven or Jesus vacated his seat at the right hand of the Father, living daily to make intercession for you and I to go visit them so they could qualify as an apostle. There are those who are carrying the label prophet today. When Jesus said, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, Hebrews tells us in time past, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us through a son. So Jesus is saying in the last days, there will be those who claim an anointing in his name, but it's a false anointing. Is that happening today? Now, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, Paul says this to the young pastor. Now, the Spirit expressly says, and I've told you this before, that's the only place in the New Testament where the word translated as expressly is used. It's trying to make a point. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, or there's something specific to the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to what? Deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking what? Lies and hypocrisy, making a claim to be anointed in the name of Jesus, but not being so having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Listen, a departure from the faith opens the door for the doctrines of demons and the spirit of deception has made its way into the church from the world in these last days. Now, Paul said this in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. That gives us a timestamp. In the last days, we would expect to see the following. Men will be lovers of themselves, Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, which is a fruit of the spirit, according to Galatians 5, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, boy, do we have those today, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And, and from such people do what? Turn away, for of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. Now, this is important to include this last section mentioning Janus and Jambres because those were the two magicians who were basically mocking the miraculous things that Moses was doing and they were replicating those uh, alleged uh, miracles or magic tricks, I guess, uh, like turning the water into blood and replicating these things, and they were doing so in the power of the devil and not of the Lord. And this is what the point of what Paul is saying is, there's going to be people like that in the last days who are deceivers. They're using lying signs and wonders to draw people away. Now, I want you to think about this this morning. You still here? Think about this this morning. This list of character flaws that Paul listed has always been true of the world. That's nothing new. And yes, it's getting worse in these last days, but it's nothing new. Now, let's think about this. People like that, are we to turn away from them or are we to go to them and preach the gospel? 
were to go to them and preach the gospel so their lives and eternal destinies can be transformed by the power of the gospel. So if Paul is giving this warning about something perilous specific to the last days, he's not talking about what the world is like, he's talking about what the church is like. This is what's going to be happening inside the people of God. There will be people like Janus and Jambres who are using uh, power manifestations, so to speak, that aren't really real, but demonic in nature. And this is what is happening today. And the only people with these types of flaws were to turn away from, according to scripture, is those in the church. Remember Paul said, concerning a man in the city of Corinth, they were all puffed up about thinking they were being loving and gracious when they had full knowledge that a man was sleeping with his stepmom. And Paul said, what are you rejoicing in? You ought to be grieved. Turn such a one over to Satan. Put him out of the church for the destruction of the flesh that the soul might be saved. Well, the church today, by and large, is doing exactly what Paul rebuked the church at Corinth for doing. They are welcoming in practices like we just read. They're saying it's a normal part of any particular season of history and culture. But listen, we also need to remember Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, there was a time that's coming when sound doctrine will not be endured. But rather people will heap up teachers because they have tickling ears who will tell them the things they like to hear that make them feel better about their current status even though their status is separated from God. They will teach fables instead of life-changing truth. Is that happening today? Yes. Now, Jesus said this in the introductory statements of uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5:13. You are the salt of the earth, just like every other religion. Is that what he said? You, exclusive statement. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Listen, when the church begins to be trampled underfoot by cultures and society and trends and political correctness around the world because it's lost its preserving and purifying influence by adopting the doctrines of demons in the form of ear-tickling fables. I submit to you this morning, the church has reached the end of the beginning and we're about to be translated in a moment and twinkling of an eye, those who are true believers, that is. Now, the church is not going to go through the 70th week of Daniel. So the ultimate fulfillment of our point is going to reach into the tribulation just like the others, but it's not going to be the church. It's going to be organized religion. Now in Revelation 13, 11 to 14, John says, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship who? The first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes, just like Janus and Jambres, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Listen, Paul said during the time of the birth pangs, 
the church will begin morphing into something that it hasn't been ever throughout the centuries, but has began the birth pang process of changing out of something that previously existed. Now, many who have a form of godliness, that's what that word form means, morphosis, means to form something out of something previous. Denying the power, meaning denying the God who can make us godly, will have become an accustomed to practice during the latter stages of the beginning of the birth pangs, specifically at the time we are in now. We are at that stage today. We are at the end of the beginning of the dumbing down of the church, the abandoning of the long held moral standard and spiritual responsibility that the church has of being salt and light to the world. The Episcopal Church and the Presbyterian Church articles I read you earlier are only two of a myriad of examples. In a word, at the end of the beginning, many in the church will love darkness and hate the light, which is just like the world and not found in the word. Amen? Amen. Now, one last thing as we wrap things up. Here's the third thing I want you to consider that tells us we're at the end of the beginning. Moral depravity has become a human right. Moral depravity has become a human right. Now, sadly, it's laughable in a sense that the world often accuses the church of being anti-science. Just because we believe in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in six night-day cycles, resting on the seventh day. We're called anti-science, we're called anti-intelligence, we're called anti-education, and yet it's the world that is letting genetic males compete in female athletic competitions. It's the world that has lost their mind, not the church. It is the world that says there are 63 genders and sex and gender are two different things, even though Webster's Dictionary says gender is one of the two sexes. Since when did it get changed? Well, as soon as it became culturally acceptable and popular. Now, where exactly are we in the progression? I wanna consider a few things as we wrap up and tie together everything that we've been talking about that tells us without question, we are at the end of the beginning. I believe the beginning of the end was on May 14th, 1948, 14th on our calendar, 15th in Israel. I believe that when Israel was reborn as a nation, the final 70th week of Daniel began to be approached and Ezekiel 37 began to be fulfilled in 38 and 39, come right after 37. You can write that down if you like. (laughs) Now, we've been in the early stages of labor since then, and now we're at the end of the beginning. Now, let me make the case for you here this morning. Since May 14th, 1948, here's some things to consider. When Israel became a nation, 71 plus years ago, sodomy was illegal in all 50 United States. Today, sodomy is legal in all 50 United States. Has immorality become legal? It's become a human right. When Israel became a nation, 
Homosexuality was listed as a mental disorder in the American Journal of Psychiatric Medicine, and it was changed to gender confusion or gender dysphoria in 1973. Has the perspective on homosexuality changed since Israel became a nation in our country and around the world? Absolutely. Listen, since Israel became a nation, remember, we're progressing toward the ultimate fulfillment of these things in the tribulation. Since Israel became a nation, AIDS entered the world scene. Did you know that AIDS was initially called GRIDS, Gay-Related Immunodeficiency Syndrome, but because that wasn't politically correct, they changed it to Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. They're not saying how you acquire it, yet history tells us without question that AIDS was introduced into the world by male homosexual activity, particularly the practice of sodomy. There is no debate about that. Since Israel has become a nation of the 77 million who have contracted HIV AIDS, 40 million have died. Is that a plague? Absolutely. Listen, hang on, buckle up. Since Israel became a nation, abortion, the mass killing of unborn children has become a woman's right. And according to the group Human Life International, hang on, According to Human Life International, who have been tracking this since 1973, around the world since 1973, between now and when Israel became a nation, 1.72 billion babies have been aborted. Are people killing each other today? They're killing children in the womb, which ought to be the safest place in the world. Since Israel became a nation, much of the church has moved from the world's preserving and purifying influence to the world's partner in protecting and promoting immoral behaviors. Since Israel became a nation, the punishment for crimes has increased, or decreased rather, for violent and sexual crimes. Penalties have now been instituted for speech laws, hate speech laws, and hate crimes laws, and they are on the increase as well. Since Israel became a nation, as we sit here today, we sit under a new California law who says that those who work in the healthcare profession have to call someone by their preferred gender pronoun under penalty of possible judgment if they refuse to do so. In other words, if a genetic male says, you have to call me ma'am or miss, and you don't do so, you could go to jail right here in the very confused state of California. Now, think about this. Let's move to something that is a little more timely since we had a whole lot of shaking going on on uh, July 4th and 5th. Since Israel has become a nation, the number of great earthquakes, those of a magnitude seven or more, have increased from one per decade to 15 per year on average. The number of great earthquakes for the century and a half that they were monitored, numbered one per decade. And since Israel has become a nation, they have increased to an average of 15 per year. I believe the highest number has been 19 and the lowest 13 over that uh, uh, time span. Now, normally I wouldn't quote NBC News because they're very confused. <laughs> but since they're reporting somebody else st else's statistics, let me say this. 
This, this came from NBC News, which actually shocked me uh, to run across this particular report from them. Listen, between 2004 and 2014, that's 10 years, one decade, 18 earthquakes with magnitudes of 8.0 or more rattled various subduction zones around the globe. Listen, that's an increase of 265% over the average rate, listen, of the previous century. We've had eight, ten, uh, 10.0, 18, 8.0, I'll get my numbers straight here in a minute. 18, 8.0 earthquakes in a decade. The previous century saw 71 in 100 years. Again, 265% increase. And this is a report according to the meeting of the Geological Society of America just two weeks ago in Vancouver, British Columbia. Now the list goes on and on and on, but let me just say this. In Revelation 9, 20 to 21, we're told the rest of mankind who were not killed by these what? Plagues. Did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their... Thefts. I wonder why you guys are so quiet. I thought maybe it was lunch break or something, but listen. This type of spiritual belligerence is not something that is arrived at or developed during the tribulation. It's something that is brought into the tribulation. As a matter of fact, it's why people go into the tribulation because they would not repent of the works of their hands. They would not repent of false worship, which is worshiping demons. They wouldn't quit worshiping gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They would not repent of their murders, their sorceries, or their sexual immorality or stealing. Listen, we are at the end of the beginning. And we do not know the day or the hour, but we can see the day approaching. Amen? Now, last thought this morning, possibly. Matthew 24, 44 says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now listen, the primary meaning of the Greek word translated expect is think. Think, the word hour in this context in the Olivet Discourse means season. And thus we could read this statement of Jesus in the heart of the Olivet Discourse as saying, the son of man is coming in a season of history when few expect him. Listen, much of the church today is not expecting Jesus to come at any moment because they are following those who say they are apostles and are not. And those who lay claim to being modern day apostles in the likeness and kind of Peter, James, and John that we mentioned earlier are making that claim because they believe that the church has to have dominion over the whole of the earth, economically, certainly religiously and spiritually, but also politically. They believe the church has to be in control. It's called either kingdom now theology or dominion theology. And this is sweeping the globe today. <laughs> And therefore, since it's obvious that the church is not in control of the world, they believe that they need a new era of apostles to usher in that time. And thus, there is no expectancy at this point in time of Jesus returning. 
Yet it's the very time that Jesus said he would come back when expectancy of his return is low. Now listen, I have news for the dominion theologist. Jesus is coming for the church when things couldn't get any worse, not when they're finally getting better. And I believe the evidence is quite clear that we can see the day of the Lord approaching and we have arrived at the end of the beginning. Jesus is coming soon. I hope you're ready to meet him in the air. Amen. And Father, we are grateful for our time and your matchless word this morning. Thank you for the information that you have given to us. Thank you for telling us that this is not going to sneak up on us like a thief. It's not going to come upon us unexpectedly. And we can clearly, according to your word, see the day is approaching, though not knowing the day and the hour. And listen this morning, I cannot let this moment get by after all the things we discuss without asking the question, are you ready? Jesus said, therefore you also be ready. Our verses this morning from John 1, 12 told us the only way to get ready is to know Jesus. And the only way to know Jesus is to be born again. Being born of the spirit is how Jesus put it when he encountered Nicodemus in John chapter three. Now listen, the Bible has given us all the information we need, both to tell us that Jesus is the Messiah as he fulfilled numerous prophecies proving that he indeed was the, uh, the Holy One and is the Holy One of Israel. The Bible has given us sufficient information to know we are living in the last of the last days of the church age. We know what's coming after the church is removed. We know what's coming after the tribulation. We know what's coming after the millennium. The Bible has given us the whole story. And Jesus said, listen, you need to be ready through be, being born again. That's the only way you can be ready to be taken in a moment and the twinkling of an eye. Now listen, part of that readiness is the repentance from sin, which is something that's been abandoned in much of the teaching of the church today. But the truth is, that's the first manifestation of having been born again. You turn from darkness to light. He calls you out of the darkness into the light, his marvelous light, he calls us. And these are metaphors for evil and good. And the fact is God calls us out of our evil practices, calls us to do good, not just to him, and to others, but to those who hate us even. It's a personal transformation that Romans 12, one and two talks about. And the fact is, listen, there's a lot of fire insurance being sold today. There's a lot of easy believism sold today with, uh, from the pulpits of the church. But the truth is we have to, after we're born again, which is going to be the natural work of the Holy Spirit, turn from our sin and begin to live for him. This is part of the, the process. This is part of the good work that began in us that he will complete up until the day of Jesus Christ. So I have to say to you this morning, if you do not have a point in time where you can say, I met the savior, he changed my life. I began to change. I know that at the end of my life of the rapture of the church, I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. And let me just add this before I offer you the opportunity to come to know him if you don't. When God causes you to be born again. His Holy Spirit begins to live in you. And listen, when his Holy Spirit lives in you, there's not gonna be any doubt about it. You're not gonna be saying, gee, I wonder if I'm really saved. Your life is gonna to begin to change. The first miracle you're gonna see is the thing in the mirror. It looks back at you every day. Your desires are gonna change. Your passions are going to change. He's going to change you for the better. 
And he's done that with every single Christian who has ever committed their life to him. So listen, in this age, as I said, where there's nothing required of the saint other than simply to believe, which is only half of the gospel message, I say to you this morning, you need to repent and be converted. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That's what the Bible says. So listen, if you don't have that marker in life, if you don't have a moment when you say, you know what, I was born again and I know it because I can see it in my own existence. If you don't have that moment in life, you need to have it today because Jesus could come today. And listen, he's coming quickly in a moment and twinkling of an eye. There's no time to get ready. So he said, be ready. Because when it happens, it's over faster than it even began. So listen here this morning. If you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, don't leave in that state today. Commit your life to him. Commit your soul to him. Trust him with your everyday affairs and all the other things that come along with being a Christian. But it all starts with one thing, and that is recognizing that he is the Lord and confessing him as your Savior. And therefore, if you have not made that decision and you... Or if, or if you are iffy on that decision. If you're unsure, you need to be sure because as I said, any moment he could come for his church. We're at the end of the beginning. So you need to be ready. If you want to get ready this morning, if you want to accept Christ as your savior, accept him as, and submit to him as your Lord, you can do so simply by praying a prayer in your heart and saying, you know what? God, I see the evidence. I accept the facts that have been presented. I recognize you are the only means by which someone can be saved. I ask that your blood cover my sin. I ask that you forgive everything I've ever done. And I ask that you place your Holy Spirit in me. And I ask that from this point, I begin to live for you. If you would like to just simply acknowledge what I just said in your heart and mind and say, I'll take God's offer of forgiveness and live forever for him and then forever with him. And the Bible says, if you've made that confession, you're saved. So if you've been sincere in that and not simply trying to purchase escapism or fire insurance, as it's often called, then you can rest and trust that the Lord has saved your soul and you'll be forever with him. So with that said, Father, we thank you again for this opportunity this morning to examine the prophetic timeline and know that the end is at hand, as you said in your word. So help us, Lord, to live for you all out, full throttle, pedal to the metal, and every other cliche we can throw at it with reckless abandon for you because of what you've done for us by saving our souls. We thank you for these things this morning. I pray for these who have surrendered to you that they would begin to walk with you all the days of their life. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.